Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, it's Adams on Agriculture. Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Thank you for joining us as we wrap up the week. We appreciate you letting us be part of your day. Hope you are safe and well. Coming up on our program today, we'll talk with the Senior Vice President, Government and Industry Relations for the Association of Equipment Manufacturers. They've announced the results of a second survey of presidents, CEOs, and owners of leading equipment manufacturers. Get their thoughts on the economy, opening back up for business, and government response to COVID-19. That's coming up on our program. We're going to talk a lot of ag issues today with the president of the National Corn Growers Association, Kevin Ross, will be joining us. And we'll talk markets and crop conditions with Matt Bennett with agmarket.net. All that coming up here on the program today. But we're going to start things off Checking in with a guy that's spent a lot of time on the road, a lot of miles the last few days uh, traveling around the Midwest. Robert White, Vice President, Industry Relations for the Renewable Fuels Association. Robert, good to talk with you again. Tell us about this road trip you've been on. Oh, good morning, Mike, and thanks for having me. I set out on Monday on a 2,000-mile whirlwind tour that took me through uh, parts of Missouri, Iowa, South Dakota, and Minnesota. Visited seven ethanol plants in total and saw uh, eight of our board members and another couple member companies. And uh, it was exciting to see and see the faces again, I guess is the simple part of that. But I did take some tours and some facilities I'd never been to, like the new one in Oneida, South Dakota, Ringneck Energy. Uh, just kind of good to get out of the house a little bit uh, while social distancing and being safe. But uh, we've got to get this industry back on its foot again. Yeah, I've been following you on Twitter and uh, interested to see what what you were hearing and seeing out on your trip, especially with these ethanol plants that have, uh, of course, been either shut down or idled. Much of the industry has. What are you finding at these plants you have visited? What's where are they at as far as back to capacity, or uh, what is the mood and morale of of these plants? What are you finding out? Well. Just like agriculture, the ethanol industry always is cautiously optimistic. I, I like to say it that way. They uh, almost all of them were up to close to full capacity, but as as at least one was not, you know, we're still looking at close to thirty percent of the industry is offline, idled in some fashion, either full idles or partials, and they're really wanting to know uh, what's going on in the rest of the world. They they like to hear the same stories that, that you're asking about. What is going on in, in Kansas City? What did you see when you were coming through Sioux Falls? You know, what is what is the world doing? Are they returning? And we're starting to see that gas demand tick back up. Now you're hearing stories of partial shutdowns or slowing of reopenings, and, and that's a concern for us because the folks are not driving. They're not using a lot of ethanol blended fuel. Well, you're doing a lot of driving this week, and you've been uh, finding places to uh, to find E15 or E85. Uh, how available are you finding it as you've been uh, making your road trip this week? 
Well, I, I stopped at one station I had never been to just to get a gallon and a half. That's all I needed. Uh, it, it was wonderful to be able to drive, like I said, close to 2,000 miles and never had an issue with finding E85. E15 stations are starting to populate more and more. Of course, I was in good states for that availability. But nonetheless, you know, we're working on the new USDA HBIP program. I think we'll add, you know, 1,000 to 1,500 new stations through that program. And retailers are looking at the opportunities, you know, coming out of COVID. What can we do? What are the opportunities out there? What what fuels will consumers consider? And what we've seen time and time again is if the education is there, at least to get them to neutral before they get to the fuel station, that once they're there, they will take the higher octane, cheaper product that they can use, whether that be E15 or E85. The grant to help the infrastructure to get more uh, higher volumes of ethanol out into the marketplace, is that moving forward or is that on hold with COVID-19? Where does that stand? No, we're neck deep in it. it the application window started May 15th and goes through uh, August, I believe, 13th. So it's a short 90-day window, the last iteration uh, BIP. You know, we they were able to accept applications over the course of almost three years. So this one's got a really tight timeline. We've got uh, we're helping not only retailers evaluate their equipment, we're actually helping them through the grant writing process. And we've got quite a few companies in the pipeline that will be submitting applications that, as of right now, would yield several, several hundred stations. Well, also, later this summer, you'll be making your annual trip to uh, Sturgis, right? That The big bike rally is still on? It is still on. It is the 80th anniversary, so it's hard to predict where things will be given given COVID, but I can tell you early on that they had reservations, hotel rooms, all of that lodging type scenarios out in the Black Hills were gone by early February. So I know the intent was for a very large crowd, record crowd to be there. Uh, we'll just have to wait and see, but we partnered with the Buffalo Chip. They were going to be open regardless, but the city of Sturgis voted just last week to I guess bless it in their in their position. Uh, they do not own the Sturgis Rally name, but uh, they they put their uh, support behind it as well. And I know the industry is watching closely. Uh, what EPA does was these fifty-two small refinery exemption requests that they're considering granting retroactively. Uh, even some senators calling on EPA to reject those. Yeah, you saw a bipartisan support yesterday that you know this is just pure absurdity that the notion of these gap waivers to go back as far as 2011 to really skirt the ruling of the 10th circuit court where it said if you do not have continuous waivers then you're not eligible and so what they're trying to do is go back in time change history so that they can receive these future waivers in future years we we hope uh, obviously, that first DOE throws them out the door as they're evaluating them, but uh, we're we're fairly offended that they even got to that point. And the senators, uh, many folks are asking for uh, them to do what's right, do what do what's the law. And right now, 
Uh, the one thing that we're reminding them is if they are going to consider them, they have a 100-day window. Uh, they need to decide these quickly, and so the rest of the industry can get back to work. And it also affects the oil industry. Imagine being an oil refiner that met your obligation several years ago, and EPA is considering adding to that. Hmm. All right, Robert. Uh, continued safe travels to you. Thanks for the update, and uh, we'll be in touch. Take care. Thanks, Mike. Talk to Kevin High. All right. I will do. Robert White, Vice President, Industry Relations for the Renewable Fuels Association. Yeah, we'll talk with NCGA President Kevin Ross a little bit later. But up next, we're going to talk about the results of a survey of presidents, CEOs, and owners of leading equipment manufacturers. Their thoughts on the economy and moving forward out of COVID-19, next on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Well, we continue to look at how the economy is trying to rebound from uh, COVID-19. While we're still seeing, of course, the virus still very present and concerns about a, a rebound in it and the, the spikes we're seeing in some of the positive cases around the country. Meanwhile, a lot of uh, different views on how we move forward and what's the government's role in that. Joining us now is Kip Eideberg, Senior Vice President, Government and Industry Relations for the Association of Equipment Manufacturers. Kip, thanks for joining us. I know you've just released uh, uh, the results of a new survey of equipment manufacturers, CEOs, presidents of these companies. What are they saying about where we're at with the economy and uh, moving through this pandemic? Good morning, Mike, and thanks for having me on. Uh, there's there's really no way to, to sugarcoat this this one, our, our second survey. Equipment manufacturers continue to face decreased demand, stressed supply chains, and unfortunately the industry has a long and uncertain road back to normal. Um, let me give you an example from our survey what this means for our industry, for those equipment manufacturers who have furloughed employees, nearly a third said it would not bring them back to work. And for those who laid off workers, eight out of 10, 80% said they will not rehire them based on current market conditions. So there's a, there's a real sense of urgency here on getting the economy back up and running again, Mike. How do the CEOs of these companies feel about the government response to uh, COVID-19? What do they think still needs to be done? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. When it comes to their view of the uh, federal government's response, a majority said that they are not getting the support they need from the federal government. Obviously, I, I should mention that we as an industry are very grateful to the federal government and to, to state and local government for designating our industry as essential uh, from the get-go, and not just the manufacturers, but suppliers and distributors as well, and service technicians, which is obviously key uh, on the ag side. Um, so that has helped uh, because many, if not all, of our member companies have been able to stay open and on the job. But we've really got to figure out a way to address demand for new equipment, Mike. That is the biggest challenge so far for our industry, that and stress supply chain. We worry that even if some equipment manufacturers make it through, their suppliers may not. So when the economic comeback comes, there may not be enough parts and components to build new equipment. So 
We are looking for the federal government to take uh, some aggressive action, shore up uh, demand for new equipment, whether that's investing in infrastructure, rural broadband, for example. Now is a great time to do that, and that will obviously lead to an increase in demand for equipment, but also infrastructure writ large. You know, that is going to help drive demand, and that will drive um, the economic comeback, not just for our industry, but for the country, we believe. But the those in the survey, the CEOs of the equipment companies, they feel that uh, they're not getting, the industry's not getting the support it needs right now from the federal government? Yeah, that's correct. A majority of them feel that the federal government has not done enough. We're talking with Kip Eideberg. He's Senior Vice President of Government and Industry Relations for the Association of Equipment Manufacturers. Uh, I want to go back to something you said earlier about uh, the feeling is that some of these laid-off workers will uh, will not be returning, that the uh, the companies will not be bringing them back. Uh, what's the vision for the equipment industry moving forward? It, it, does it look greatly changed, vastly different uh, post-COVID-19, or, or do we really know yet? I, I, I don't think we know yet, Mike. That's a great question. And, and you know, I, I should say that this is the second survey that, that we've run, and, you know, we have seen some improvements, right, uh, over the past uh, two months when it comes to the, the operational and financial outlook for some of our member companies. So it is not all doom and gloom. But, you know, unfortunately for many of our companies, you know, they are running out of time and they're running out of money. But what will the future look like? I, I think it's a little too early to, to tell. I mean, fortunately for us, uh, you know, our equipment, as you know and your listeners know, help, you know, build, feed, and power this country. And so we're always going to need, you know, to put food on our tables, which means farmers and ranchers need to be out there. They need to be planting and harvesting, and so they need equipment. And that's why you've seen the impact on ag equipment not nearly as severe as on construction and mining. Um, but obviously, um, as we as we get into the fall, uh, and, and who knows what's going to happen? You mentioned a, a second wave earlier. Um, we're we're hoping that um, we can see an uptick in demand. We're hoping to get back to a sense of normalcy. And obviously, we also want to make sure that we can keep our our you know our employees, the men and women of the industry, safe. Uh, so when they go to work to build great equipment, they can do that in a way that's that's you know safe to them and to their to their loved ones. What are some of the ways that the industry is adjusting and dealing with the pandemic and still serving their customers? Another great question. So some of our member companies uh, early on, so we're talking months ago, uh, shut down uh, their facilities for, for a week or two so that they could then reopen uh, in, uh, in, a, in a way that's, that's safe to the employees, right? So some of them have been running more shifts, uh, shifts around the clock with fewer people, um, on the shop floor at any given point, and that's obviously to make sure that social distancing uh, can be observed uh, and that people can go to work feeling safe uh, about it. Um, so I think that's that's probably the biggest adjustment that that companies have have had to make. Uh, but you know they're also looking uh, to their supply chains, uh, trying to trying to figure out how to get parts and components. Uh, looking to domestic suppliers. Uh, Certainly, again, at the early uh, early onset of the crisis, when, when China was locked down, when Europe was locked down. Uh, but, you know, moving supply chains takes a lot of time. So, you know, that's not something you can do quickly. And then I think more, more than ever, we've seen uh, from our industry, Mike, just, a, just an outpouring of support for the communities where they operate. Many of our members are in, are in rural communities, smaller communities. Uh, and so they've been working, you know, with the people that, that live around them. To, to care for them, uh, to care for the community, keep them safe, to figure out how to navigate this together because it's, you know, 
equipment manufacturers, you know, we want to lead the, the economic comeback. We want to be part of it when it happens. But we also got to make sure that, you know, we, we look to the to the future of of the communities where we where we live and operate, right? So there's been a, there's been a lot of, of uh, a lot of working together, coming together. Uh, I think that's probably the biggest thing we've seen. And a big part of the challenge and why it doesn't happen, a recovery doesn't happen overnight. There has to be a rebound in, in a lot of areas, and farmers have to uh, see improvements for their financial situation, and then feel confident uh, that that's going to last a while be- before they pull the trigger on making some of these big purchases. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I should say, you know, when, when we look at, you mentioned earlier what we'd like to see from the federal government, right? And we've been working around the clock to support the industry as, as they get through the pandemic. But, but there's really two tracks here. There's the immediate response to the pandemic, uh, which we continue to work on. And that is, you know, again, making sure that our members are continuing to be designated as essential, you know, supporting them um, to keep their manufacturing operations open in a safe way. But there's also the long-term, Mike, and that's where we really need to to look at policies that are going to help our country, um, our industry, and our customers, right? So we are, we are working hard on infrastructure investments, and that's not just roads and bridges, but that's rural broadband, that's waterways, locks and dams uh, that we just got to put more money into because it, it, you know, it, doesn't, it does you no good if you build a great combine in the middle of the country or you, or you grow crops if you can't get that to the ports and to other markets. So we've got we to gotta see an investment in infrastructure from the federal government. We've got to defend the renewable fuel standard. That's critical, obviously, to, to farmers. Uh, and you know, farm income is the number one driver of equipment sales. So we've been working hard on the RFS. And then trade. Uh, you know, we've got the USMCA coming online on July 1st, which will provide some certainty, hopefully, for our, for our industry and for farmers and ranchers. But we can do more. You know, we need to open up more markets uh, for U.S. commodities. Uh, we need the Chinese to live up to their obligations under the Phase 1 and Phase 2 deal. So all of this is part of the recovery, right? And, and you know, the economic well-being and health of our industry is directly linked to that of farmers and ranchers. So it really is a team effort to support, you know, their priorities because their priorities are our priorities. Yeah, a lot of layers to this. Uh, you mentioned infrastructure. It would just seem that uh, so much uh, help could come from a good infrastructure movement and, and package from Congress and move forward here from a job standpoint, the, the need that's out there with the infrastructure, the benefits that would uh, uh, bring, uh, the help it would bring for communities and, and, and uh, rural economies even. There's just so much if we could just get moving forward on that. Yeah, and, and let, me, let me throw a sort of somewhat startling stat at you. Uh, this is something that was announced just yesterday. More than 700 cities and municipalities, that's 700, have stopped critical infrastructure projects right now. There is an acute revenue crisis at state and local, state and local mm-hmm. level, as much as $550 billion. So this is money that was earmarked for infrastructure, but because of the pandemic, because Americans are not driving as much, they're not shopping as much, tax revenues have plummeted. And so one easy way for the federal government to help with infrastructure, obviously we want them to, to pass the authorization of the federal surface transportation program. We want them to invest in infrastructure, but they need to step in and shore up the state and local uh, government right. so that they can get back to building infrastructure. which will hmm. pull up demand, it will help our industry. Something to really look at, uh, the infrastructure aspect. Kip Eidenberg, Senior Vice President, Government and Industry Relations for the Association of Equipment Manufacturers. Thanks for being with us, Kip, here on AOA. Thanks for having me on, Mike. 
Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. Time now for a market check here on Adams on Agriculture. I'm Rusty Halverson from the American Ag Network. A mixed tone to the grain and oil seed sector as we begin the Friday session. USDA saying that 132,000 tons of soybeans sold to China in 2021. However, the futures trade not doing much with that information. July soybeans an hour into the day down two and three quarters, 866 and three quarters. November 865 down three and a quarter. Some grain traders said to be wondering wheat futures have found a bottom Apparently not yet. Chicago wheat July down four and three quarters at four eighty two. Kansas City wheat July down three and three quarters at four twenty six. In Minneapolis spring wheat, the new crop September down two cents at five seventeen. For corn futures, we're trending a bit higher following the trend in the overnight trade. July up a penny and a quarter at three eighteen and a half. December up a penny at three twenty nine. Soybean inventories in the U.S. expected to drop by over 400 million bushels in USDA's next quarterly stocks report that comes out next week. For livestock at the Merck, in live cattle futures early on this Friday trading session, we are trending 25 to 55 cents lower. June live cattle down 27 at 93.90. August live cattle down 40 cents at 95.67. Feeder cattle August down 47 at 132.77. September down 55 at 133.95. Lean hog futures, triple digit losses. Market hog inventories, according to USDA's numbers yesterday afternoon, 73.3 million head, up 6% from last year. July lean hogs down $1.90 at 45.02. The Dow down 506 points. You're listening to AOA. I'm Rusty Halverson from the American Ag Network. Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. Well, we're joined now by Kevin Ross, president of the National Corn Growers Association. Kevin, good to talk with you again. How are crops looking in your part of Iowa? Hey, looking real good down here, Mike. Uh, things are moving along nicely. Corn's uh, that good, beautiful, deep, dark color, and the beans are you know, starting to move along pretty good, too. How's your moisture? Well, right in our immediate area, we're uh, a little bit dry, but uh, there's you, know, you don't have to go too far and and uh, most folks are in pretty good shape. And I can't say it was hurting too bad yet, but uh, we're going to definitely need to, you know, need some, some rains throughout this uh, rest of the summer to, to keep us going right here. We've, uh, we've, we we're uh, through a pretty pretty dry stretch right through planting there. So um, going to need some help get this thing uh, pushed through, but it looks good right now. All right, let's take a look at this, talk about some of the issues. We'll start with glyphosate. A couple of developments there in recent days. First of all, the judge... A federal judge in California ruling that glyphosate cannot be labeled as likely to cause cancer under California's uh, Proposition 65. Your thoughts on that decision? Yeah, that's a, a good uh, good win for us. There, we're you know been pushing hard to make sure that uh, uh, you know real data is out there that, that supports uh, the safety of glyphosate and 
and uh, I think that's you know one of the one of the pieces that, uh, that that now we can point to again to say that this is you know true facts and there's not uh, um, uh, these mislabeled things you know misleading the consumer misleading uh, the general public and and uh, hopefully we can you know continue with wins like this for other products as well. Yeah, corn growers, national corn growers, you were a plaintiff in that lawsuit challenging that uh, state uh, effort to uh, put that on the label. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, we, we know these are, again, uh, just a, one of the products that we use in agriculture uh, broadly, as well as the consuming public, uh, you know, normally in a lot of lawns and other landscaping needs. And uh, uh, But for farmers in general and for the corn farmer, a very important tool in the toolbox that uh, we just know we got to have. So uh, trying to make sure that we can, can have that ability long term. Then a second uh, announcement uh, related to glyphosate, Bayer announcing it was settling thousands of lawsuits uh, over uh, a link between glyphosate use and cancer. What would you think of uh, the action taken by Bayer? You know, it's uh, it's very similar uh, goals with the, with the outcome of this thing uh, as to what I just talked about. You know, it's really about the long-term ability to use glyphosate, uh, making sure that, uh, you know, it's not, not taken off the market for other reasons. I think, uh, you know, Bayer has to make the best business decision they can for their company, um, and that's what they chose to do. Uh, you know, it's certainly, as a, you know, as a consumer, I think, uh, uh, you know, it's frustrating to see when, when you have to go through those situations and see uh, uh, things paid out like that that, uh, you know, in some ways we think are, uh, you know, as a as a farmer, you know, again, we see what the ruling was in California, and we see what uh, uh, what has happened here separately, um, and they seem kind of you know opposite, and and it's it's interesting to see how that works. But sometimes the business world and sometimes the uh, uh, the legal challenges that that take place don't always uh, seem to match up. But uh, I'll tell you, they you know they had to make their decision, and for us, it's about you know having that ability to to use it long term, and we've been in contact with them the entire time. Uh, about this and about this lawsuit and you know and certainly um again it's for us it's about that long-term goal and they have they've known that and been supportive of that and making sure that uh you know this ensures that that ability to happen so uh farmers again have that have that uh that that ability to use it in the toolbox for a long time we're talking with kevin ross president of the national corn growers association kevin as you talk with your members across the country how concerned are they about losing the tools they need uh, to grow a crop? I mean, these crop uh, chemicals and different inputs that are under so much scrutiny, are, are they concerned about uh, losing current technology and maybe not getting uh, future technology that they could use? Absolutely, absolutely concerned. Uh, um, especially when you see what you know what recently happened with uh, dicamba as well, and, and uh, that we had a lot of calls on that. We've been working very closely with uh, soybeans and cotton that that uh, you know have the issue a little more directly in front of them. But but we see you know the issues there, um, you know with the the Ninth Circuit Court there and that ruling. Uh, we see that as a you know potential um, you know precedent-setting issue for us long term. You know anytime that you have a uh, a ruling come out in the middle of the growing season after we've you know made decisions for you know for uh, uh, traits and seed decisions and then chem you know chem application for uh, months and months ahead of time and and most of these products were already bought these decisions made uh, well in advance and, and then you have uh, rulings like that come out 
you know you can see just how uh, how concerning these types of issues should be, and and they really are for farmers when it comes just to real business impacts and what uh, what we have to look at and be concerned about. So, uh, big issues that we're dealing with when it comes to uh, you know to those tools, and and um, you know we're we're very vigilant to make sure we're in, involved in these issues and uh, talking to a lot of the companies and the plaintiffs in these cases and making sure that uh, you know we know what's going on. Another issue getting a lot of uh, attention, discussion in Washington right now, and that is carbon policy. Um, where ag fits into this, there's a lot of talk about needing uh, you know, a lot of leadership and guidance from USDA on this. But I think a lot of farmers still remember cap and trade and the problems there and, and concerns that might rise from this. How does this how do you see this playing out and working for agriculture that give gives farmers an opportunity to be really be a part of this without it being uh, uh, you know something that's seemingly more regulation or more punitive to uh, to agriculture yeah that's a, that's a good question Mike and I think um, you know the uh, the proposed policy is you know something that uh, is setting up database within the government just to, to make facilitate those uh, you know those people that want to buy carbon credits and things like that um, there's uh, it, for us, it's not about changing, you know, the the practices that that are potentially being done right now. As we know, there's a lot of great practices that are that are out there, and a lot of people doing uh, good work, and, and a lot of people that are sequestering a lot of carbon. And so, um, you know, providing those opportunities for for extra value to to the farmer um, is something that you know we obviously look at from a long term standpoint. But concerns about uh, carbon credit and carbon trading, uh, anytime we're looking at a policy, you know, we, we evaluate these things with a pretty broad lens and make sure that uh, uh, we're understanding those concerns and, and taking a look at those, too, because uh, those are certainly fresh in my mind. And, and uh, definitely, you know, there's there was a lot of issues around that before, and we want to make sure that, you know, we can learn from that. But there is profitability to be, to be made in, in carbon sequestration. There's certainly uh, a lot of good things going on in ag, and, and uh, we know that uh, you know we can capitalize on some of these uh, some of these things, and, and hopefully we can you know add additional profit to the farmer's bottom line. And learn from the mistakes of the past. It, it, se- it seems like they start things like this start out with good intentions, good ideas, good possibilities, and then it gets kind of uh, you know <laughs> a lot of uh, politics and other agendas get thrown in there and it kind of gets uh, off course somehow hopefully this time it'll stay on course well that's exactly where we've got you know our staff out in dc and uh other folks that uh, are within our organization you know working to make sure that the details of these things um you know don't get drawn the wrong way and and that's also why the political process uh uh you know we have to make sure that we're we're having these connections with the, the folks that are a, introducing this legislation, but also be the ones that uh, want to have impact on it as well and, and making sure that we're vigilant on, on uh, things that don't get snuck in there and uh, we don't get caught sleeping on a, on a piece that, uh, that changes. So um, those, are, those are things that you know, we're always looking at and uh, bills that are out there, but this is definitely an important one for sure. And another big issue I know you're watching closely, what happens with these 52 requests for small refinery exemptions going back to, to 2011? Uh, I know you're urging, uh, even senators now urging EPA not to grant these waivers. Hey, unbelievable that uh, that we would have this request come forth now. It seems, you know, it seems like we've been talking about this issue for uh, forever now. Uh, 
but these SREs, you know, are still just uh, they're they're propping their you know popping their head up again. And uh, this issue is about uh, you know continuity, and it's basically you know about the the circuit case, uh, the the 10th Circuit Court case that we won, uh, along with our other partners involved in that one. That uh, you know that talks about uh, not having the the ability to grant those because there's not a continuous uh, continuous policy, and so um, or they weren't granted you know continually, and so they're looking for these you know reverse waivers to happen, and now we're we're uh, making sure that you know that that these don't happen as well because we're uh, <laughs> it's just unbelievable they would even have this request and if they would grant something like this, uh, just can't even imagine the. Uh, you know, how we're going to go about fighting this uh, again, because that's just ridiculous that they would even uh, go backwards in time and grant uh, grant that type of continuity. And you can't ignore the fact it's an election year. This could have political consequences. You, you, you can't ignore that at all. And I think, uh, you know, there. who knows what, what type of time frames they'll have in these decisions in, in ways it feels like. Uh, just ways to, to delay uh, decisions that have already been made and things that are won. Um, but uh, man, I tell you, like I said, it was just uh, just frustrating to see this pop up again. And, and uh, we're going to fight hard to make sure this doesn't happen because this is uh, it's truly unacceptable to see something like this after the ruling that we won. Yeah, it's very, very important to see what happens here and what decisions they make. All right, Kevin, good to talk with you again. Take care, and uh, we'll be in touch and hope to see you soon. Hey, thanks a lot, Mike. Appreciate the time, as always. Take care. Kevin Ross, president of the National Corn Growers Association. Up next, we're going to talk some markets and crop conditions with Matt Bennett with agmarket.net. We'll see how things look in his part of the world around east-central Illinois and what he's hearing from uh, farmers around the country and uh, his thoughts on where we're going with the markets. Stay with us. You're listening to AOA Adams on Agriculture. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. We're joined now by Matt Bennett with agmarket.net. Matt, good to talk with you. How do crops look in East Central Illinois? Yeah, I mean, it just depends on uh, where you're at in East Central Illinois. But right here where I'm at, we actually look really good. You know, we planted some stuff in early April, worried about how cold it was, but it it just looks amazing. Uh, You get into some areas, though, that maybe waited until uh, that week right after Mother's Day, and they're in May, and and some of those crops uh, didn't make it, uh, did some replant. Uh, So there's kind of a mixed bag in this part of the world, but I would say right on my farm, I've been pretty blessed. I I definitely feel very fortunate right now. What's your moisture situation? We got plenty of moisture last weekend on saturday sunday and then into monday on my farm there at my house uh, i had three and a half inches of rain uh wow now you go 25 miles to the west of me on our farthest away farm you know and we only had an inch and a half but still it was more than enough to keep us charged up and ready to go so we feel pretty good about going into this heat you know that uh, some people are forecasting uh, we definitely have plenty of moisture uh 
you know, up top, and then uh, obviously plenty of subsoil moisture, the kind of spring we had. And maybe some more moisture this weekend, it sounds like. Yeah, I mean, they're talking a pretty good chance for rain. I'm kind of hoping we don't get too much. I mean, I, I'd never want to chase a rain away this time of year, but I will tell you, Mike, we spent a lot of time spotting ponds in and getting replant done, uh, you know, and then we had three and a half inches of rain, so you know what's going on in those ponds. Uh, uh, probably going to have lost a pretty good chunk of what we replanted, but you know what? Uh, we did our best, so uh, we'll just have to see how the chips fall. Mark, it's still assuming a big crop. Yeah, and it's pretty tough for the market not to assume a big crop. You know, we had a really good fall. Uh, that turned into a really good spring. Uh, you know, our, our progress was, was solid. You talked to a lot of producers west of Mississippi especially who said they had pristine planting conditions uh, for much of the spring, really good stands. And whenever you couple that with, you know, enough moisture to keep most people happy, I know not everyone's uh, happy but for the most part you've got really good conditions and 72 percent good to excellent that may mean some to some others some others might not agree that it means a lot Uh, but bottom line is we know this crop's in pretty good shape Uh, you know and given the kind of planting window we had you've got to assume that right now uh, most of the trades probably looking uh, close to 180 for you know just some sort of an over under at this time so Barring something unforeseen right now, there doesn't seem to be a, a weather rally coming anytime soon. It really doesn't look that way. I mean, I guess my vantage point is for us to really get a sharp rally. We really need something from a demand perspective. Next Tuesday certainly could provide that. I happen to think that the quarterly stocks report would have the tendency to have a bullish surprise. Uh, the other thing, of course, is if China would step in and buy a bunch of corn uh, or ethanol, uh, it would certainly be a, a real feather in our cap. Uh, but bottom line right now is that it looks like we're going to have pretty good-sized production, even if you have 94 or 95 million acres. You know, the kind of yields that some of these folks are, are, are tossing around, there's no question that uh, you're looking at a pretty good-sized crop. So we really need something to uh, boost us from the uh, from the demand side of the equation. How many customers do you talk to that are still holding on to old crop waiting for that better price to sell it and uh, now wondering if they've held on too long maybe? I'll tell you what, if you'd asked me that earlier in the week, I'd have said most of my customers. Now, some of these guys and gals have decided to give up uh, and say, you know what, I'm not going to roll again. I'm, I'm just going to take my lumps, maybe go along a, a few sh- uh, cheap and easy calls. But, you know, uh, I think that there's a little bit less than what there was earlier in the week because they've been forced into making a decision in here uh, towards the end of the month. But at the same time, I, uh, I think that there's still plenty of corn out there. The problem that I see, there's so much of this corn that's on basis, you know, and, and so whenever the market plummets, as we've seen around the countryside, basis has, in, has improved a fair amount in, in many areas. In my area, it's improved a dime, you know, and we've heard that uh, places where it's improved a dime, the posted bid actually, uh, you know, certainly wasn't the best that the, the, the end user could, could uh, post or could end up giving. And so, the push has actually been really good. So that's part of the reason I want to be cautious is to lock in too many bushels on basis. And the reason I bring that up is because basis for a lot of us looks really good for fall right now. Uh, but keep in the back of your mind that uh, it doesn't always work out the best to lock in too much for your basis at once. We are seeing a, a slow rebound by the ethanol industry. Some of these plants getting back up and going and uh, buying corn. Absolutely. And so, you know, uh, eight weeks in a row, we've actually gr- gr- uh, our grind 
you know, of, of corn for ethanol has gone up eight weeks in a row from a, a low of around 53, 54 million bushels to, you know, over 91 this week. And so, you know, in eight weeks' time, we've made up some serious ground. We're around 85% of where we were running earlier uh, in the year whenever we were running full bore. Uh, that's a really good sign of things. But obviously, with this coronavirus situation uh, rearing its head here the last several days, you know, some of these states start, uh, start talking again about shutting down. It's concerning to me. I, I certainly hope that we continue the trend we're on because we've, con- we've continued to hear from other ethanol plants who are getting up and going and wanting to get up and going. And as you mentioned, uh, that does nothing but help your local basis because these guys are needing to buy bushels to get going again. You mentioned China earlier. Boy, we talk a lot about where they buying as far as soybeans and some other products. If they would buy some ethanol like we thought they were going to a, a while back before all this uh, started with the trade war and everything, that would really be a big boost, wouldn't it? Oh, it'd be just a tremendous boost. We'd, we'd really like to see this. You know, China's been using more corn than what they've been producing for several years now. They definitely want to be able to use more uh, ethanol, you know, there's no question that they've got air quality issues, especially in their cities. And so, you know, if they want to use a cleaner burning fuel and they want to institute more ethanol, there's no doubt they're going to have to buy ethanol off of us or, you know, just step in and buy the corn. And uh, the way that they've drawn their reserves down, I think, is exciting to us long term, uh, as long as we can get them to step in and buy. And what better time for them to buy if they truly want to look good, you know, in the world sector? Uh, you know, and fulfill this phase one trade agreement, why not just buy a bunch of cheap commodities because they're cheap as what they're going to get probably uh, right now. All right, Matt, good to talk with you. Have a good weekend. Thanks a lot. Hey, Mike, thanks for having me. Take care. Matt Bennett with agmarket.net. With that, we wrap it up for the day and for the week. Have a great weekend, a safe one, everyone. Hope you'll join us again on Monday right here on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world.